I'm uh, sorry. I just have to adjust. Like Luke's never been that nice to me before, so I'm just like, <laughs> I just have to take a second right now. <laughs> I'm like, something's happening, and there's something not adding up here. Um, but good morning. Uh, good to see everyone again. And uh, gosh, it's really nice just being able to come back and just like it be like nothing. Like uh, we haven't been away for a while. So um, really, really glad to be here. And um, gosh, I. I don't, did Luke and Doug, you've already gone to Mexico, right? Did you already do a trip to Mexico? Yeah, you did, right? I was like, I just feel like I saw pictures of you guys eating food. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I was like, oh man, that looks awesome. Um, but this morning, I'm going to be continuing, I think you guys are doing a sermon series on engaging the kingdom, if I'm not correct, if I'm not wrong, right? Well, um, we're going to be continuing that, slightly different, but continuing it. And I want to start us off this morning by asking us a question. Um, are you a person that struggles with anxiety or maybe stress or maybe depression, maybe lack of sleep? Um, and that's not because like you've been up watching TV all night or anything like that or heart problems or hard of hearing. Um, I think there might be something for all of us in this sermon because I think at least at a minimum all of us struggle with anxiety. I've learned recently, um, I used to have this notion where I used to think that I had to get rid of my anxiety and I've learned to see my anxiety as just um, being a part of me that is telling me something about myself. It's telling me what I'm going through and what I'm experiencing. So I think all of us at a minimum um, have some anxiety and in 1905, this Nobel Prize winning scientist, um, Robert Koch, said that the day will come when man will have to fight noise just as much as cholera and the plague. And he said that in 1905. Um, the World Health Organization did a 10 year study in Europe where noise, they found that noise pollution removed 100 million healthy years across the, the continent and um, because of noise pollution, and they tacked on an economic of value to that, and they estimated it was costing them about $40 billion a year because of that. It's now been scientifically, scientifically proven that too much noise can lead to short-term effects such as anxiety, hypertension, sleep quality, distraction, and stress levels, and even temporary changes in hearing loss, um, as well as long-term effects such as heart disease and permanent loss. It's become so bad that noise pollution has directly contributed to 26 million people in the U.S. experiencing some loss of hearing, and they estimate around 1 billion people around the world are going to be experiencing hearing loss. So what's particularly worrying is that our body actually also hears noises when we sleep. I don't know if you're aware of this, but our body is constantly aware and hearing things even when we sleep. And it's this that actually affects us a lot of the time. And it's the noise that our body hears when we're sleeping that raises our blood pressure, which also leads to cardiac disease. Studies have shown that children who are in schools that are close to airports and railroad tracks, it directly affects their ability to learn. And in 98, they did a study where they did a study on the school that was right next to a train track and would, trains would pass there all the day, um, all day. And they found that it um, led to 11% um, lower um, learning rates than the other schools in the area. And when they insulated the classrooms and they put noise um, uh, 
noise reduction devices in place, they found that the kids actually ended up selling past other schools because they were so used to it. And now that they had this freedom to learn without so much noise, they were actually excelling. So even in places like hospitals, a place where I work, there's been a dramatic increase in noise. Um, in 1960, they did a study and they found that the average hospital had a noise level of 57 decibels. And in 2010, they found the average hospital had a noise level of 72. And so noise levels have been doubling every 30 years since they started measuring them at the beginning of the 20th century. And there were studies done, I don't know if you guys noticed this, but uh, at the beginning when we were in the pandemic, like our environment flourished and it turns out that like um, the animals really liked us being in our houses and they were like, oh, this is more like freedom for us. Um, but they did studies during the lockdown in between Ireland and the US and they found that the noise levels were, had been reduced by 50% during the pandemic, which led to a whole bunch of um, uh, good things happening in the environment. And um, we can summarize all of this by saying that we have a noise pollution problem. And I'd argue that not just the noise in the world around us, but personal things too. So welcome to church. We like to give good news here on a Sunday morning and really like to tell you about the gospel. But I want to quickly bring up a Facebook poll that I did. Um, it was done very scientifically and um, on a Sunday during lunch, Saturday during lunchtime, and um, it's been proven. So I asked people what their biggest noise in their life was, and these were some of the examples. Phone, electronic devices, self-talk, politics, my heart, chronic physical pain, Wesley's whining, nursing school, to-do lists, anxiety, Wesley's whining, leaf blowers, attempting to feel like I've done enough to be worthy. I think I resonated with that last one especially. But I think that we're all realizing unconsciously or consciously that the idea of noise, like whether it's um, noise that we hear every day in our everyday lives or internal noise that really affects our hearts, whether it's from information, our phones, technology, um, kids, that was the biggest response, but I didn't want to put that up there. But um, it's affecting us, and that's, I think, why things such as silent retreats and yoga is on the rise. Airbnb's fastest growing type of location is one away from busy areas one in quiet areas where there's no one around them. I now ironically get mindful reminders on my Apple Watch. And don't ask me my feelings on corporations adopting mindfulness tactics in order to ignore unhealthy wolves they are creating. But if you want to, I'll be here after the service. But we live in a world, we live in a world of noise that we were never created for. And so what's the answer to this? Do we just continue like this? Or how do we live in a world that like, let's be honest, is probably always going to be with us. We're always going to be living in a noisy world. Well, I want to propose to you something that has been with us for nearly 2,000 years. And it's something that has been practiced by Christians for thousands of years. Luke mentioned Martin Luther, and he was a monk. And this was central to Martin Luther's faith. And it's something that saints before us have gone, and they found that this is a practice that draws us closer to the heart of God. And that is contemplative prayer. 
In some circles, it's known as centering prayer. But in the sermon series that we're going through in engaging this, the kingdom, this is one way in which we can engage in the kingdom. And places like monasteries, contemplative prayer is literally the founding blocks that they are built on. So what is it? What is contemplative prayer? And I want to go through the saints that have gone before us, that have gone through this practice of contemplative prayer and find out what they have seen, how they've experienced it, and what they've come to know about contemplative prayer. And so Richard Foster says this. He says, contemplative prayer immerses us into the silence of God. And Thomas Merton um, says that contemplative prayer is fundamentally simple. And he goes on to say, it is not so much a way to find God as it is a way of resting in Him who we have found, who loves us, who is near to us, who comes to us to draw us to Himself. Thomas himself actually goes on to say that all public forms of worship are useless without comprehending and embracing the silence that's found in contemplative prayer. He says, this response to prayer calls forth is not usually one of jubilation or audible witness, as important as those are. It's a wordless and total surrender to the heart of God um, in silence. St. John of the Cross says, our greatest need is to be silent before this great God, for the only language he hears is the language of love. Teresa of Avila um, uh, do we have, yeah, prayer is an act of love. Words are not needed. And so we have one more, and this is my favorite one. Um, and I love the way she describes this, but it says, if we are to witness to Christ in today's marketplace where there are constant demands on a whole person, we need silence. If we are to be always available, not only physically, but by empathy, sympathy, friendship, and understanding, we need silence. She goes on to say, true silence is the search of man for God. True silence is the speech of lovers. True silence is a garden enclosed, where alone the soul can meet its God. True silence is a key to the immense and flaming heart of God. It is the beginning of a divine courtship that will end only in the immense, creative, fruitful, loving silence of final union with the beloved. Really beautiful. And what we actually find is that these saints that have gone before us found this prayer life within the scriptures and the tradition that had been handed down before them. Um, throughout scripture we see all these verses scattered, and it says in Psalm 37, 7, be silent in the Lord's presence and wait patiently for him. And we see this in the life of Jesus in Mark 1:35. I think we've got a slide for it. Um, if not, I'll just read it. It says, then Jesus got up early in the morning when it was still very dark, departed, and went out to a deserted place. And there he spent time. Psalm 62.1, For God alone my soul awaits in silence. And Zephaniah says, Stand in silence in the presence of the Sovereign Lord. So, um, if you're like me, 
I did not grow up with this prelate. I grew up in the church in Pentecostal and charismatic circles where I would watch, I would walk past the sanctuary doors and I would see them laying down the towels and they were getting ready and I was getting scared. And I knew what was going to happen because I just didn't want my parents to be falling on the floor. I don't know. I feel like that was pretty normal for a six-year-old to be scared of. But that's what I grew up with. I, I only saw this one type of prayer life. And let me be very clear. This prayer life changed my life. This type of prayer life impacted me on a very deep level. But I also, I don't know about you, but I sometimes struggle to hear God's voice. I sometimes struggle to know if God is speaking to me. I sometimes struggle to know if I'm listening to God, if I'm really listening to God. Or, um, I don't know about you, but I've been times in my life where I've been so desperate to hear God's voice, to know that He sees me, and to know that He knows what I'm going through and that I'm not alone. And sometimes I've been in those times and I've heard nothing. Has anyone been in that time in their life? Hands up, two people, awesome. So to the two people, um, <laughs> but I think that every single one of us has been in that time and we're not sure what to do with it and we're not sure what that means for our relationship with God. But I, I think what the contemplative prayer life teaches us is that God is there in the silence. God is already in the silence waiting for us to When I first started practicing contemplative silence, it was so uncomfortable. And it still is uncomfortable. Because when we sit in silence with God, we're allowing God to speak. We're allowing our feelings to come up to the surface. And you're like, oh, I don't know, I was feeling that. And we're allowing space in our lives to be given over to God in the silence. So I thought this morning what would be really helpful is to look at the balancing of prayer, our contemplative prayer life with our charismatic prayer life. In the vineyard, the charismatic prayer life, for the monks, it was a contemplative prayer life that anchored them. In the vineyard, it's our charismatic prayer life that's really anchored this movement, who we are as Christians and where we're going. So I want to see how these two um, prayers um, can be built in our lives. Um, and one way of doing that is to just understand each one. So the contemplative prayer life is about silence. It's about being with God. It's about receiving God's love. And it's about our personal journey with God. And with the charismatic prayer life, it's about responding to when God speaks. It's about acting with God. It's about being missional with God and it's about being relational. When we, um, when we are praying for people and we're, we're wanting to respond to God's words, we're prioritizing the person in front of us. And we're saying, God, what are you doing in this person's life? And then we join God with him to help redeem that person's life and to help um, partner with God to see, that per to see that person's life flourish to see that person receive the love of God. And so I'm saying this morning that if we want to have a flourishing charismatic life, one way we can do that is to build our contemplative life. Because when we can sit in the silence with God, 
we're allowing God to have the first word. And we're saying, God, we are ready to wait for you for this person. And when we're able to sit in the silence of God, it not only benefits our life, but it benefits other people's life too. And I think um, what's really important about knowing, understanding the contemplative prayer life is that it's not about withdrawing from the world, and it's not about escaping the world. Well, it is about withdrawing, but it's not about escaping. And when we look at the origins of contemplative prayer life, it was actually happening with Christians that were being persecuted, with Christians that lives were on the line every day, and their answer was to turn to God in silence. And so contemplative prayer is not just the some ethereal thing where we have to go to a mountaintop, although it is really nice and I highly recommend doing that, but it's also part of our everyday lives. It's a prayer that we can incorporate where when we come home and we're tired, when we need to do the dishes, or when we have to wake up early in the morning, or when we have to drop the kids off at school and we are on our last legs. Contemplative prayer life is actually there to help us with those everyday tasks. And so the question is, how do we go about doing it? In the vineyard, we literally have a five-step prayer model where we say we've got these five steps, and when we follow these five steps, we're allowing ourselves to participate with God. And so do we have something for contemplative prayer? And I first want to preface this by saying I don't think that contemplative prayer is about a checklist or a technique that we have to master. But it's essentially about us being silent with God. And so we're saying that there's some, some practical things that we can do in our lives. Um, in order to do this. And the first one is just finding a space that's quiet and a time that's easy for you. We don't have to contemplate. We don't have to complicate it. We don't have to make it a long drawn out thing. You don't have to make it an hour thing. You can make it a five minute thing. You can make it a 10 minute thing. Whatever is easiest for you, we can begin there. We don't have to draw it out, especially in the beginning because it's uncomfortable and it's not easy. Um, and the second thing I want to say is to just breathe. Breathe and relax. Let go of the stresses in our lives. Let go of the worry of the anxiety. And become present to what's happening in our hearts and God's presence, that presence that's already with us. And number four, bring to mind a scripture you're meditating on. My, one of my favorite scriptures to work on um, when doing contemplative prayer is the scripture, be still and know that I am God. And end in a posture of silence and openness. The whole point of contemplative prayer is to let God have the final words. And so we want to open ourselves up to everything that God has before us for the whole day, for the whole week. We're literally saying, God, here is my life. This is your kingdom. And I want to recognize also this morning that it's not easy. And for some of us, especially uh, for some of us this morning that um, have experienced a lot of trauma in our lives, and I have spoken to so many people, we're being alone by ourselves 
becomes the hardest thing because it brings up so many uh, memories of trauma or anything like that. And so I just want to say that if that's you, don't feel any pressure because contemplative prayer is primarily an invitation from God. It's God extending an invitation for us to be with Him. When, when speaking, um, speaking about monks that lives will literally revolve around this prayer, Thomas Moden um, wrote about it and, and the way he experienced it, and he said, the, the way of monastic prayer is a way of following Christ, of sharing in his passion and resurrection. For that very reason, the dimensions of prayer in solitude and those of man's ordinary anguish, his self-searching, his moments of nausea at his own vanity and capacity for betrayal, the way of prayer brings us face to face with our false self, but it brings us into life with Jesus and our true self. The monk faces the worst and discovers and the hope in the best. The darkness comes light and death to life. It's through this journey that we undertake where we face up to our humanity and we discover our true humanity in Jesus. It's here that we find out that our authenticity and our grounding is found in Jesus Christ. The man who came to be with us, died on the cross, rose again, so that he may draw close to us forever. And this morning, I want to end on this quote. And it's from Catherine Doherty. And she says, the silence then, will break forth in a charity that overflows in the service of the neighbor without counting the cost. It will witness to Christ anywhere, always. Availability will become delightsome and easy, for in each person the soul will see the face of her love. Hospitality will be deep and real, for a silent heart is a loving heart, and a loving heart is a hospice to the heart. And that's the goal of it's not so that we may grow for ourselves, but that we may grow for others. That we may live lives open to serving others where our lives become uh, um, innate in a virtual place of hospitality. Where, like we said earlier this morning, we want to be welcoming people. This is a way of welcoming people because we're allowing them into our lives. And so right now, I want to invite Luke up and we're going to do some ministry time. But before we move into the charismatic side of our prayer life, I want to just center us in the silence with God. Are you with me? Are you okay with doing that? Are you okay with being silent for a little bit? And we're just going to go through this 